Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a yearly podcast series that features leading scholars and experts discussing some of New York City's most important historic places and institutions. I'm your host, Peter Christian-Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History, which produces the show each fall for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Evan Frist talks about Bike New York, the organization which hosts the annual Five Borough Bike Tour, as a starting point for a wider discussion about the history of cycling in the city. When this yearly event began in 1977, it was just a few hundred people biking alongside cars on the ever-gridlocked streets of New York. By now, over 30,000 riders participate each year, and for one day at least, the roads belong to them. But the question of who owns the streets, the largest swath of public land in New York, goes back to the earliest days of the modern city. When the first velocipede, or bike prototype, appeared in 1819, Riders had to maneuver around horses, push carts, carriages, livestock, and of course, people. Things got much more complicated, however, after the car arrived. In a rapidly warming and predominantly urban earth, the bicycle has reemerged as a cheap, healthy, sustainable alternative to private transportation. And in recent decades, New York has become far more of a biking city than it has ever been. Yet there's always been a boom and bust dynamic, as Frist relates here, drawing on his two books on the subject. Cycling City and On Bicycles, a 200-year history of cycling in New York City. The past is any guide, the future still remains unclear. To hear the rest of the series, visit us on GothamCenter.org and find us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. You'll never see more cyclists on the streets than during the annual Five Borough Bike Tour, hosted by Bike New York. There's often more than 30,000 riders, and the event dates back to 1977 with a local group of organizers who are affiliated with American Youth Hostels. It's a ride, they insisted, not a race, hoping to attract a broad range of New Yorkers. In the inaugural tour, a couple of hundred people pedaled around the streets, which remained open to automobile traffic. By 1979, Seven and a half thousand cyclists paid the $1 entry fee and traversed the 36-mile route in a bright-colored safety vest donated by Citibank. Police escorts and the National Guard stood by to aid the exhausted. At least for the day, the streets belonged to them. But who do the streets belong to on a more typical day? Whether back in the 1970s, the 1860s, or even now. The stakes are enormous. About one quarter of the earth on which New York City sits is a street, equal to about 58 central parks. Those streets reveal as much of the soul of the city as any place. What they look like and who they serve are questions so fundamental that the answers dictate what the city looks like and who it serves. Figuring out where bicycles belong has always been difficult because New Yorkers have never been able to agree about what, exactly, a bicycle is. A 1973 New York City Department of Transportation report described it as the stepchild of the transportation world. Back in the 19th century, bicycles were compared to horses, sometimes called steel horses, to carriages, sometimes called horseless carriages, and even to flying creatures. My new wheel is a bird, one enthusiast declared, no doubt with a smile on his face, in 1896. 
Cyclists sometimes raced against railroad cars. Other times they brought their bicycles on board. Toddlers rode them in playgrounds, but so did racers in velodromes. Over the years, bicycles have managed to be exercise machines for the health conscious, surveillance units for cops, a way to explore for the curious, instruments of commuters, and cargo ships for messengers. Since the bike's first appearance, cheerleaders have lauded its many uses. But the bicycle's versatility has also raised critical questions, questions that dominate the two-century, on-again, off-again history of cycling in the city. Who is a real cyclist? What is a bicycle really for? Work, play, or both? How New Yorkers viewed cyclists, whether as childish, hyper-masculine, counter-cultural, white, ethnic, elite, or working class, and what they believed the bicycle's principal purpose was, recreation, racing, commerce, or transportation, has forever shaped where and how bicycles belonged in the city, if they belonged at all. From the moment the very first velocipedes, pre-bicycle bicycles, arrived in 1819, residents fought about what to do with them. Should they be allowed on the streets, in the parks? Riders wheeled through Vauxhall Gardens, bobbed down the hill to City Park, and circled Bowling Green. Yet within three months of seeing their first one, New York lawmakers enacted the city's first bike ban. With roughly 120,000 residents, New York was the most populous city in the country, and the bumpy cobblestones or muddy, dirt-paved streets were already crowded by carts, carriages, pedestrians, horses, and hogs. Riders were more likely to take to the parks or the sidewalks, and it was from those spaces that velocipedes were officially banned in August of 1819. Failure to comply resulted in a $5 fine. Velocipedes came roaring back in the 1860s. They were riding schools and oodles of cyclists in the parks, which prompted lots of complaints and calls for a ban. With the growing concern that bicycles scared horses and that bicyclers would take a sort of pleasure in doing so, the Manhattan Department of Public Parks Commissioners enacted a resolution in 1881 written in unusually plain language that no bicycles or tricycles be allowed in the central or city parks. Cycling was unbecoming. It had no place in the park. Cycling remained prohibited until the summer of 1883, when the commissioners begrudgingly granted riders access to the park. Only certain cyclists, riding in a certain way at a certain time. They had to be proficient, and they had to be members of one of the established bicycle clubs, which often had strict admission requirements in terms of money, class, and taste. If their application for a permit was accepted, they wore a special badge while entering the park. Over the next decade, the number of cyclists swelled. In the 1890s, the safety bicycle, the kind of bicycle that we would all recognize today, emerged. Cycling was the fashionable pastime of the day, and riders began demanding more infrastructure, including bike lanes and paths. Bike traffic to Coney Island had become so heavy that riders successfully lobbied for a five-and-a-half-mile path, ultimately one in each direction, starting at another favorite destination, Prospect Park. The majestic, extra-spacious, 
Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox designed Ocean Parkway, was particularly well-suited for the two generous paths, one 16 feet and the other 18 feet wide, that ran alongside the main drive with a healthy buffer lined with trees separating the bicycles from the carriages. The paths were not without controversy. In order to use them, cyclists had to agree not to use the main drive. Some expressed concern about segregating and therefore delegitimizing bicycles. Nevertheless, the Coney Island cycle path, which was the most impressive bicycle path in all of the United States, set off a wave of path building around the country. The rise of the bicycle in the 1890s was met with a sudden crash by the turn of the century, a change ushered in more by fashion and taste than by the automobile. By the 1930s, bikes were popular again. Hollywood stars rode them, as did New Yorkers old and young. From the 1930s through to the 1960s, the question of where bicycles belonged in New York was in large part answered by one man, Robert Moses. Although he is best remembered, and rightly so, for his highways, it was Moses who prioritized the kinds of infrastructure that would be built, where such projects would go, and how people and vehicles would use them. In the grandest sense, it was Moses who shaped how people moved, and his decisions had lasting importance. In fact, they were often cast in concrete. Moses' first major bike initiative came in July of 1938, the Alley Pond Cycle Path in Queens. Stretching two and a half miles along the old Long Island Motor Parkway, the private road was originally built in 1908 for racing sports cars by William K. Vanderbilt. The road had since become city property, and Moses saw it as the perfect opportunity to satisfy a growing public demand for bike infrastructure. Like a new playground, the Alley Pond Path was entirely for recreation. To mark its opening, Moses joined the Park Department's 50-piece band in a grand celebration filled with visible reminders of the 19th century cycling world. High-wheel bicycles, Charles Mile-a-Minute Murphy, the bike racer who back in 1899 famously set a speed record while drafting behind a Long Island railroad car, and 62-year-old Alexander Ewers, introduced as the first bicycle cop to have arrested a speeding motorist. The irony that a road built for cars was now being remade for bicycles was not lost on anyone, let alone Moses. The way to make progress sometimes, Moses said, is to go backward. The Alley Pond Path, among the grandest paths built anywhere in the country since the turn of the century, was just the beginning, so Moses promised. He acknowledged that bicycle facilities were the biggest unsatisfied need facing the park department and promised more comprehensive changes to come. In August of 1938, he announced a program of proposed facilities for bicycling. He outlined a broad plan to build paths across the city at a rate and a scale few believed was possible. He proposed adding 58.75 miles of bicycle paths, running within the parks and stretching alongside several of his famous parkways. The new paths were intended for cyclists and cyclists alone. No New Yorker, and few, if any, Americans, had seriously pushed such a comprehensive plan to accommodate cyclists, 
since the 1890s. And he was starting from almost scratch. When Moses took office in 1934, the total distance of all bicycle paths in all five boroughs measured, according to one official, just five and a half miles. And that was probably referring to the still standing bicycle path that linked Prospect Park and Coney Island that had been built for cyclists, but was now barely recognizable as such. Moses's plan touched each borough. Staten Island, where Moses dubiously claimed the indulgence in bicycling may be heavier in proportion to population than in any other borough, was slated to receive just a single one-and-a-half-mile route, owing to the fact that the lightly traveled highways can take care of most of the demand. On most other occasions, Moses made it clear that bicycles did not belong on the streets. Indeed, as monumental as the plan was in its scope, in many ways it cemented the status quo. Moses' program was as much about making the streets more car-friendly as it was about providing places to ride. The 24-page plan begins by acknowledging what the Parks Commissioner thought was obvious. Bicycles have no place on public highways. This was an assertion, but not a law. While it is true that the New York City Parks Department could regulate bike use in the parks and along the parkways, and while New Yorkers conceived of streets as primarily motor traffic thoroughfares, state law from the 19th century still granted cyclists the right to the road. Laws tended to survive longer than infrastructure. Nevertheless, Moses called out the cyclists as themselves a hazard to motorists. He also went out of his way to ensure that the new paths did not impede automobile traffic. In Moses's vision, and in the city he would go on to build, cyclists fit only on paths inside parks. Unless bicycling is confined to designated controlled areas within the parks, it would be just as dangerous as on city streets, he wrote. Where exactly those paths ran seemed rather unimportant to the man famous for his love of details. We have planned winding layouts, Moses cheered, which will lead, in most cases, from somewhere to some other place. Since the real purpose was to provide a safe and relaxing setting, apparently no actual destination was needed. Moses was building for only one of the bicycle's many uses, recreation. The 1930s bicycle boom would fade, as did Moses' dream of a network of bike paths. He imagined it would be funded by New Deal monies provided from the federal government. The money never came. There was another cycling uptick in the early 1970s. It seemed like New Yorkers on 10 speeds were everywhere, until they weren't. It was a recurring pattern, a peak of interest followed by a period of decline. Yet each time the booms lasted longer, just as a novice rider is first able to balance only a few seconds without falling, then a minute, then two, then three, New Yorkers rode for longer and longer with each revival. Ever since the mid-19th century, whether it was velocipedes, high-wheelers with their almost comically oversized front wheels, safety bicycles, tricycles, cruisers, 10-speeds, fixed gears, BMX bikes, city bikes, or e-bikes, there have always been bicycles in New York. Today, 
we are in the midst of yet another bicycle renaissance. The city is home to innovative street designs, the largest, by far, bike share program in the country, and lots of people worried about climate change. Organizations like Bike New York are working to ensure that bicycles remain a vibrant and integral part of the city. Staffers introduce school kids to the essential and the wonders of cycling. While the one-day spectacle of the five borough bike tour is important, it's the everyday practice that will make cycling sustainable. What is the future of cycling in New York? I don't know. But the question has now been asked for two centuries. And the answers reveal as much about the bicycle as they do about the city and its people. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available on Apple Podcasts and GothamCenter.org, where you can also learn more about the rest of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for the season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann and Gabriella Montequin for Citizen Race Car. Special thanks to Dina Ecker for help in the making of this episode, too. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center City University of New York. Be safe, everyone, and enjoy Open House New York weekend.